0: Chapter 8 Work I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. John 9, 4, King James Version. A very speculative question had been put to our Lord, and His answer to that very speculative question is, I must work. His disciples wished to know something about the mysterious fact that some people are born in an unhappy condition blind, deaf, or dumb, and why they were sent into the world under such disadvantageous circumstances. Wouldn't you also like to know? Don't you wish that the Savior had expounded on that mystery? There are so many points of controversy connected with that question that he could barely have had a more controversial topic. Surely he could have enlightened us far more than Socrates or Plato. Why didn't He, with such a perfect opportunity, plunge into the labyrinth of metaphysics, expound on predestination, and touch on the points which agree or disagree with free agency? Here was a perfect opportunity for interpreting all the marvels of divine sovereignty. Why didn't He immediately open all this up to the people? Instead, He turns to them and says, I must work. You may think. You may talk. You." may argue, but I must work. You may be consumed by, if you know no better, the inferior occupation of wrangling about words, but I must work. I have to obey a nobler cause than those which come to your carnal ears." We gather from this that the Savior has a greater respect for work than He has for speculation, that when He comes into the world He will go to all the mighty thinkers, the gentlemen who are constantly producing new ideas, and put them into the same category as rubbish. But when he finds a single worker, a poor widow who has given her two mites, a poor saint who has spoken for Christ and been the means of the conversion of a soul, he will receive these works which were done for him as precious grains of costly gold. We may say of work done for Christ, like the land of Havilah, the gold of that land is good, and Christ thinks it to be so. He estimates the work of faith and labour of love done for him at a great price. A Necessity to Labour The first thing we observe in our text is a necessity to labour. I must work. With Christ it wasn't, I may if I want, or I can if I like. We don't see the mere possibility of work, but a necessity. I must. He couldn't help himself. If I may use such words concerning one who is no less divine than he was human, he was under restraint, he was bound, he was compelled. The cords which bound him, however, were the cords of his deity. They were the cords of love which bound him who is love. It was because he loved the sons of men so much that he couldn't sit still and see them perish. He couldn't come down from heaven and stand here robed in the same mortal flesh as us and be an impassive careless, idle spectator of so much evil, so much misery. His heart raced with desire. He thirsted to do good, and his greatest and grandest act, his sacrifice of himself, was a baptism with which he had to be baptized, and he was distressed until it was accomplished. His great soul within him felt as if it could not stop. It was like the troubled sea that cannot rest, each of his thoughts was like a mighty wave that could not be still. His whole soul was like a volcano when it begins to swell with the lava and wants to vent. He must let his soul run out in hot consecration and devotion to the cause of those whom he came to save. He says, I must work. Not only was it the love within which drove him, but it was also the sorrow around him which compelled him. That blind man had touched the secret cord which set the Saviour's soul to work. If that blind man had not been there, or rather, if it had been possible for the Saviour to forget the cases of misery which existed around him, then he might have been quiet. But because he saw the multitudes perishing like sheep without a shepherd, perishing before his soul, because, far more vividly than you and I have ever done, he realized the value of a soul and the horror of a soul being lost and he felt as though he could not be still he said i must work picture yourselves standing on the beach when a ship is being broken on the rocks if there were anything that you could do to contribute towards the rescue of the mariners wouldn't you feel within yourselves i must work it is said that sometimes when a crowd sees a vessel going to pieces and hears the cries of a drowning men they seem as if they were all seized with madness Because they don't know what to do and are ready to sacrifice their own lives if they could possibly do something to save others. Men feel that they must work in the presence of so dreadful a need. And Christ saw this world of ours quivering over the pit. He saw it floating, as it were, in an atmosphere of fire, and he wished to quench those flames and make the world rejoice. Therefore, he must work to that end. He couldn't possibly rest and be quiet. He didn't know how to relax, even at night. Cold mountains and the midnight air witnessed the fervor of his prayer. When he was faint and weary and needed to eat, he would not eat, because the zeal of God's house had eaten him up, and it was his meat and his drink to do the will of him that sent him. The love within and the need around him acted towards one common end and formed an intense necessity. So that the Saviour must work. He also came into this world with a purpose which would not be achieved without work, but which was a passion with him. So he must work, because he desired to accomplish his purpose. The salvation of the many whom the Father had given to him, the gathering together of those who were scattered abroad, the finding of the lost sheep, and the restoration of the fallen. He must accomplish these objectives eternal purposes must be fulfilled. His own promises must be honored. He had loved His own which were in the world, and He loved them so that He could not leave the world until all His work was completely done, and He would be able to say, It is finished. John 19, 30. Hopefully, looking forward to the reward, anticipating the glory of bringing men from the imprisonment of their sins and carrying them into the Tower of Salvation, he longed and panted to work. The soldier, who is desirous of promotion, scorns peace and longs for war, so he may have an opportunity of ascending in the ranks. The young man who wants to carve out a position for himself in the world is not satisfied to vegetate in a country village. He wants work. He wants it because he knows that work is the way of rising in the world. It's true enough, if a man has an honorable ambition, that he should seek the means by which that ambition may be attained. The Father's desire was that the Son be crowned with the gems of the souls which He had saved, to be the great friend of man, the great redeemer of mankind, and consequently the Son must work. He must be men's Savior, and He cannot be their Savior without working. Therefore, the passion within, the need around Him, and the great and all-absorbing purpose which drove Him onward Furnished three cords which bound him like a sacrifice to the horns of the altar. I must work. Without going into more detail on a theme so tempting, let me ask whether you and I feel the same compulsion. Because if we are as Christ was in the world, if we are worthy to be called his followers at all, we must be compelled with his compulsion. We must feel the weight of his load. Do we feel as if we must work? oh, there are so many who profess Christ who feel that they must be fed. They don't even get so far into effort as to desire to feed, but they must be fed as with a spoon. They desire to have certain precious gospel truths broken down, dissolved into baby food, and put into their mouths while they lie in bed, almost too idle to digest the food after they have received it. There are some other Christians who feel as if they must always find fault with other people's work. As if it were a passion with them to criticize and judge. There are others who believe they must be excused from working. They will use any excuse to get out of any task and do their best to escape giving to any charitable or Christian need, and if they can, they avoid exposing their own precious selves to any kind of sorrow or toil in the service of the Lord Jesus. I trust we are not of such a weak spirit as this. If we are, then let us stop bearing the name of the gospel. As one said, either be a Stoic or give up being a Stoic. So I would either be a Christian or give up being called a Christian. It is not to be a Christian and to shun work for Christ. However, I trust that we have felt this compulsion, I must work. Why must I work? That I may be saved? Oh, no, God forbid! I am saved if I am a Christian, not through my own works, but through Christ's works. I have heard the gospel which tells me that there is life if I look to the crucified one. I have looked to Christ, and I am saved. Then why must I work? Because I am saved. If He bought me with His blood, I must spend myself for Him who bought me. If He sought me by His Spirit, I must give myself to Him who sought me. If He has taught me by His grace. I must tell to others what I have learned from him. The motive which dictates Christian activity is not so worthless and selfish a one as that of obtaining heaven through that activity. Why, even a Romanist, a masterly Romanist, however strange an anomaly that so sweet a song should come from so foul a cage of unclean birds, could sing My God, I love thee, not because I hope for heaven thereby, nor yet because who love thee not. Must burn eternally. Thou, O my Saviour, thou didst me upon the cross embrace, for me didst bear the nails and spear and manifold disgrace. Our love is caused by Christ. His love for us makes us feel that we must work for Him. When we were little children, a kind friend made us very happy one day, and yet a second and a third time did that same friend make our little hearts leap for joy. And when we went to bed, we said, before we fell asleep, I wish we could do something for Mrs. So-and-so. I wish I could give her something. Perhaps we had no money. But the next morning we got a few flowers out of the garden and set off so pleased to take our little bouquet to our kind friend, and we said, Please accept this little present because you've been so kind to me. We felt as if we couldn't help it, and we were only afraid that our little present would not be received we felt that if we could have done ten, twenty, or fifty times as much, we would have thought it all too little. But it was our happiness to do what we did, and to wish to do more. The same Spirit prompts us to desire to do something for the Lord Jesus. Oh, will He accept anything from me? Will He let me try to increase His glory? Will He permit me to feed His lambs, to be a shepherd to His sheep, to look after three or four girls in a Sunday school, to watch over one child as for him, to give a tract away, or to give of my resources to any of his interests? Oh, then, how good it is of him to let me! How I wish I could do more! Oh, how I wish that I had a thousand hands to work for him, a thousand hearts and a thousand tongues, so that I might use all for him. Brethren, I hope you feel the love of Christ in you which makes you say, I must work. Then, If you live in this neighbourhood, and most of us, I suppose, do live this side of the water, can you go through the courts and streets, can you go into the darker parts of the neighbourhood, those close by which you know, without feeling I must work? I wish sometimes that some of you people who have been successful in the world, and who live a little farther out in the country, where the air gets a little purer, I wish you could be made to sniff the air in which poverty always lives in this city of ours then I think you would feel as if you must work. Our city missionaries must sometimes feel marvelously enthusiastic, I think, from the sights which they see and the sounds which they hear. They must feel as if they must work because men are dying, hell is filling, the gospel is not taken to the people, and the people do not come to the gospel. The multitude go their way as though there were no Christ and no heaven. I wish to God I could have said. No hell after they died, but that is their portion, and they live as if they were preparing themselves to inherit it. A specialty of work. Secondly, let us notice that there is a specialty of work. I must work the works of Him that sent me. There are plenty of people who say, I must work, but there are very few who say, I must work the works of Him that sent me. Oh, the work! The brain work and head work that is done in London to get rich. It is very proper, of course. If a man wants to get on in the world, he must work. It is very well. I would not say to any young man, be idle. If you want to prosper in anything, throw your whole soul into it and work as hard as you can. Many, many people feel the drive of working to be successful or to support a family. Very proper indeed. But I don't need to exhort you to do it. Because I believe, as honest and moral men, you will feel that obligation without any exhortation from me. Some work in order to get fame. Well, that's not such a bad thing on its own, but I don't need to speak about it, because those who choose that path will fall into it without my advice. Here's the point I must work the works of Him that sent me. Christ came into this world neither to be a king among kings, nor to be famous among the famed, but to be a servant of servants, and to fulfill the will of God. Scripture. Then said I, Behold, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my bowels. Psalm 40, 7-8. He came to do it, and, having come, he did it. Observe the character of the work which Christ performed. It wasn't a work of his own devising. It wasn't a work which he had set to himself of his own will, but it was a work which had been ordained of old and settled by his Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Observe, too, that Christ made no picking nor choosing about this work. He says, I must work the works, not some of them, but all of them, whether they are works of drudgery or works of honor, bearing reproach for the truth or bearing testimony to the truth, works of suffering himself or works of relief to those that suffered, works of silent, secret groaning or works of ministry in which he rejoiced in spirit, works of prayer on the mountainside or works of preaching on the mountain's brow. Christ had given Himself up unreservedly to do for God whatever the Father asked Him to do. All these works were works of mercy, works of soul-saving, and unselfish works. He saved others, but He would not save Himself. They were not works by which He increased His own treasure. Instead, He distributed to the needy. They were not works by which He lifted up Himself. He humbled Himself to men of no position. His works did not earn him honor among men. Instead, he offered his back to those who beat him. The dishonor of those who dishonored fell upon him. His works were works of pure generosity to men and entire devotion to God. I wonder whether you and I, as Christians, have ever fully and thoroughly experienced a compulsion to do these types of works. I must work the works of Him that sent me. Brethren, it is so easy to work our own works, even in spiritual things, but it is so difficult to be brought to this. I must work the works of Him that sent me. There are ten thousand actions good in themselves which it might not be right for me to choose as my occupation in life. I know many people who think it is their business to preach, but who really should make it their business to hear for a little while longer. We know some who think it's their job to take the headship of a class, but who might be amazingly useful by giving away some tracts or by taking a seat in a class themselves for a little while. The fact is, we are not the ones who pick and choose the path of Christian service which we are to walk in, but we are to do the work of Him that sent us. Our objective should be, since there is so much work to be done, to find out what part of the work the Master would have us to do. Our prayer should be, Show me what you would have me to do. Have me to do in particular, not what is generally right, but what is specifically right for me to do. My servant might think it's a very proper thing for her to arrange my papers for me in my study, but I would feel only a small amount of gratitude to her. If, however, she will have a cup of coffee ready for me early in the morning, when I have to travel to a distant country town to preach, I will be much more likely to appreciate her services. So some friends think, I could do so well if I were in such and such a position, if I were made a deacon, if I were elevated to a certain position. Follow the path laid out before you, and work as your master would have you. You will do better where he puts you than where you put yourself. You are no servant at all when you pick and choose your service, because the very spirit, the very essence of service, consists in saying, Not my will, but thine be done. Luke twenty two forty two. I wait for orders from the throne. Teach me what you would have me to do. However, on this point there is less need of insisting than there is of insisting upon the other. We must feel ourselves impelled to some form or other of spiritual effort for the good of others. I ask you, Christian men and women, do you all feel this? Oh, what wonders were performed by two or three hundred people after our Lord went up to heaven! They were enough to evangelize the whole world. Here is this great city of London of ours, with its more than three million inhabitants. I do not know how many Christian souls there are in it, but there must be many thousands. Yet up to this day we have been insufficient for the evangelization of this city. Instead of our meeting its demands, It is a simple matter of statistics that ten years ago London was better provided for than, with all our efforts, it now is. Is this to be tolerated? If there were a good reason for this, we might accept this grim reality. But since there is none, and the fault must be with us, let us ask, what is the cause of the mischief? It is that all Christians have not yet learned the truth, that each Christian is personally to do the work of him that sent him. We are not to delegate our ministers to do it, or think that we can discharge the service of God by proxy. Each man and woman must personally give himself and herself to the service of Christ, feeling that he can read this text for himself, I, I, I must work the works of Him that sent me. I must do it even if nobody else does. I must feel a compulsion. I must in some form or other commit myself to those works which are specifically the works of God, who sends His people into this wicked world on purpose, so they may do them. I will say here as an illustration, to prove to you that progress is not impossible if we are only willing to make the effort. There is probably no religious movement in England which is so overwhelming, which has advanced so rapidly, as the movement of ritualism which we sometimes call Puseyism. It is advancing wonderfully, and it is advancing in two quarters, two quarters which ought to shame us forever, because they are the two most inaccessible quarters. You will find rampant Puseism laying hold upon the upper classes and getting into the drawing-rooms which we thought could not be entered. It is storming what we thought to be impregnable citadels of rank and lofty respectability. It is finding them in such a style and getting them into its grip so wholly and completely that the resources of the rich are given far more exceedingly to their false faith than our resources are given to our true faith. The next greatest advance of this system has been made among the poorest of the poor, those people who, it is said, will not come to hear the gospel. Oh, but that is a lie, because they will come to hear the gospel if the gospel is preached so that they can understand it but it is the scandal of many Christian churches that these poor people will not go to them. Yet these very same people are affected by Puseism and get converted to it too. They go down on their knees as earnest worshippers and are thorough believers in the whole thing. Now, how is this done? Well, I will tell you. The priests who believe in this thing honestly believe in it. They believe it to be the truth and they hold it with a grip that is not relaxed. They are not ashamed to suffer reproach for it, but come out boldly in their own colors, not hiding and playing and shuffling as some others have done, ashamed to confess what they have done, but they have come out boldly. And let me say, all honor to them for the honorable courage they have displayed in their dishonorable work. I like to give the devil his due. If you see courage even in a foe, you can still let it be called courage. I reverence the courage of those who will stand up for Rome in the midst of deception and Protestantism, as well as the courage of the Protestant who stands up against Rome in the midst of a Roman superiority. If they have done all this, and they have done it mostly through the real devotion of the priests, don't we have some such courage and devotion among our ministers? I hope that if the ministers have failed here, each one will begin to correct himself and that we will become as devoted and as bold in our cause as they can be in theirs. But the next thing is this. They make all their members and all their admirers devoted missionaries. You will find them reading their little tracts, dropping their books, saying a word to those young men in the shop, talking a little to that young lady in the drawing room. You will find them everywhere sending their sisters of mercy around. A minister I know, went into the house of one of his members, and said, There is a Sister of Mercy going around near here. Does she call at this house? Oh, yes, was the answer. Certainly, she goes into every room in the house. Well, he said, I did not know that I even dared to go into every room. Does the Sister of Mercy really go into every room here in the house? Oh, yes, sir, and into every room on our street. Well, how is that? Oh, I don't know, sir, but she gets in somehow or other. And why shouldn't we get in somehow or other? Why can't we do what they can do? Should they do what we dare not do and cannot do? Oh, it's a fine thing that the soldiers of the Pope should be braver than the soldiers of the cross. Should it be so? Oh, God forbid! May the old spirit and the old courage and the old enthusiasm come back to the Christian Church, and there is enough to save London yet. There is enough for us to push back the tide of Popery yet. There is still enough to prove the Gospel and to show that it is still a thing of power. Mighty through God for the destruction of strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10.4. But we must come to this conclusion that our work, our activity, must drive itself into the special channel of doing the work of Him that has sent us, and doing it at once. A limitation of time. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. This limitation of time sounds very weighty to my ears, coming from the lips of Christ. Jesus Christ, the immortal, the ever living, says, I, I must work while it is day. If anyone could have postponed work, it was our eternal Lord. He is in heaven, but he is working still. There are a thousand ways in which he can serve his church. We believe not in the intercession of the saints, but in the intercession of the saint's master, because the saints can't work for us in that land of rest after they quit this world of labor, but He can. He can continue to pray for us. The head of the church is always active, and yet He said, I must work while it is day. See the importance placed on you and me? We can do nothing further with our hands once the turf has covered our head. All time to work is over, then, so consider it a warning when it says, While it is day. How long will it be day with us? Some days are very short. These wintry days are soon over. My young brother and sister, your day may be very brief. Work while you have it. Is there a sign of tuberculosis? Work, then. Don't make that an excuse for idleness, but an argument for labor. Work while it is day. Or, if there is no sign of illness, remember that your sun may still go down before it reaches its noon. Young man, don't wait until your skills are fully developed and your opportunities are large. Instead, say, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. You may never live to be twenty-one. Be a soul winner before you are a man. Dear sister, seek to be a mother in Israel a mother for Jesus Christ, while you are still just a girl. Seek to win souls for Jesus, while you yourselves are but lambs in Jesus' fold. While it is day. Some of you are getting gray, and your day can't be very much longer. Evening has come, and the shadows are drawn out. You mustn't make the infirmities of old age an excuse for being altogether out of harness. The Master does not ask from you what you are unable to give but what strength you still have, give it to Him while it is day, feeling that you must work the works of Him that sent you. While it is day. If I had a prophet's eye and could pick out the people here for whom the bell will toll during the next month, how this text might affect them. While it is day. Dear mother, if you had only another thirty days, another month to live, and you knew it, how you would pray for your children during that month, how you would talk to those dear boys about their souls, but you have never taken them aside and spoken to them yet. Sunday school teachers, if you knew that you would only go to class one, two, three, or four more Sundays, how seriously would you begin to talk with those children in your class? This is the way we ought to live and work always. You know Baxter's words, I preach as though I ne'er preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. Let us do the same. Suppose you live ten, twenty, or thirty years longer. Those years seem very brief, and when they are gone they seem like yesterday. So let me even ring the bell myself. Let me sound the text like a warning bell in your ear. While it is day, while it is day, while it is day and since i just reminded you of your own mortality let me give the text another sound as i ask you to remember that the day may soon be past not to you but to the objects of your care let me remind you that there are two lives here to be insured another life as well as your own while it is day you will not have the opportunity to speak to some people in london tomorrow because they will die tonight It is impossible for you to have an opportunity of speaking to two thousand of them next week, because they will die this week. The bills of mortality will demand, and the insatiable hunger of death will call for them. They must go. Oh, do your work while it is day with them! With some, it is day only for a very short time, even though they may live long because with some men their day is only the one occasion when they go to a place of worship, the one occasion when there is sickness in the house and the missionary enters, the one occasion when a Christian comes across their path and has a fair opportunity to speak to them of Christ. Many of our friends here in London don't have a day of mercy, in a certain sense. They don't hear the gospel. It never crosses their path. A bishop once said that it would have been better for some people in London if they had been born in Calcutta, India, because if they had been born in Calcutta, Christian devotion might have found them. But living as they do, in some of the back slums of London, no one cares about their souls at all. Therefore, since their day may be so brief, and yours is so brief too, let each gird up his loins tonight and say, I must work the works of Him that sent me, While it is day, you came over Blackfriars Bridge tonight, and you may drop down dead on it as you go back. You came from your house tonight, and you left at home a dear friend to whom you wished to speak about his soul. Do it tonight, because he may die in the night. I think I read it in the life of Dr. Chalmers that on one occasion he spent an evening with a number of friends, and there was present a Highland chieftain, a very interesting character. They spent the evening telling amusing stories of their lives and travels, and after an enjoyable evening they went to bed. At midnight the whole family was startled from their sleep. The highland chieftain was in the pangs and agonies of death. He went up to his chamber in sound health, but died during the night. The impression upon Chama's mind was this, had I known that he would have died, wouldn't the evening have been spent differently? then shouldn't it have been spent in a very different manner by men all of whom might have died? He felt as if the blood of that man's soul in some measure fell upon him. The experience itself was a lasting lesson to him. May it also be to us in the hearing of the story. From this time forth may we work with all our might while it is day. Reminder of Our Mortality Now we come to the last words of the text. The night cometh when no man can work. Here is the reminder of our mortality. The night cometh. You can't put it off. As sure as night comes in is due season to the earth, so death comes to you. There are no manoeuvres by which night can be deferred or prevented, nor by which death can be postponed or altogether stopped. The night cometh, however much we may dread it. Or, however much we may long for it, it comes with sure and steady steps in its appointed time. The night cometh. The night cometh for the pastor who has laboured for his flock, for the evangelist who has preached with earnestness, for the Sunday school teacher who has loved her charge, and for the missionary who has worked for souls. The night cometh. The night cometh for the sitters in the pews, the father, the mother, the daughter, the husband, the wife the night cometh. Will you need to be reminded that the night cometh for you? Will you embrace it for yourself, or will you, nursing man's delusion, think all men are mortal but yourself? The night cometh when the eyes are closed, when the limbs grow cold and stiff, when the pulse becomes faint and finally will stop its beating. The night cometh. Solomon thought this out for all mankind. There is no man that has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, neither does he have power over the day of death, and weapons are of no use in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Ecclesiastes 8:8. To the Christian worker, it is sometimes a dreary thought. I have plans in action for the cause of God, some of which I have just begun, and sometimes I think I would really like to live long enough to see them mature. Perhaps I will, but daily I feel like I will not. Constantly it haunts me. I may begin these things, but if I don't do all I can today, I may never have tomorrow. So I say again what I've said a thousand times in my own soul, that I will do all I can now. As for the years that are to come, they must manage for themselves. It's no use when starting plans to look forward at what they may grow into in years to come, and then to write down as our work what might spring out of our work. No, we must do immediately and at once all that has to be done. God can afford to wait with His work, but we cannot afford to delay with ours. We must work now, while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. The coming of the night, though always comfortable to the Christian when he remembers that he will see his Master, is sometimes still a very heavy thought to us who are engaged in many works for Christ, and who would like to live to see some of those works prosper. How dreary the conclusion! When no man can work! Mother, you can't bend over your children and teach them the way of life when you have departed. If you desire to have them taught in the things of God, your voice will never teach them of the love of Jesus when you are gone. Missionary, If that district of yours is unattended, and souls are lost, you can never make up for the damage you have done, for the mischief you have caused. Your memory and your love are past. You are gone. The place that knew you once knows you no more. Among the deeds of the living you can take no share. If, by your example, you lifted the floodgates of sin, you cannot return to let them down again, or to stem the current. If you missed opportunities to serve Jesus here, you cannot come back again to retrieve them. If one were a warrior and lost the battle, one might long for another day to dawn and for another conflict to save the campaign. But if you lose the battle of life, you will never have it to fight again. The tradesman may have claimed bankruptcy once, but he trusts that with more careful decisions he may still achieve success. But bankruptcy in our spiritual service is bankruptcy forever, and we have no chance of retrieving our loss. It is a night in which no man can work. The multitude before the throne can do no service here. They cannot alleviate the poverty of London or remove its shame and sin. They can praise God, but they cannot help man. They can sing unto Him that loved them and washed them, But they cannot preach of him, nor proclaim to those who need to be washed at the fountain that is filled with his blood. It would almost be desirable if they could, because surely they would do the work so much better than we can do it. But the Master has decreed otherwise. They must fight no more. They must only stand and look on at the battle. They must work the field no longer. They will eat the fruit, but they cannot till the soil. The work is left to those who are still here. Let us have no regrets because they can't join in. Instead, let us thank God that he reserves for us all the honor as well as all the labor. Let us plunge into the work now. Like the British soldiers in battle, when few were told by their king that he hoped there was not one man there who desired to be more, for, said he, the fewer the men, the greater each man's share of the honor. So let us wish for helpers from the skies. With the might of God upon us, with the Word still full of precious promises, with the mercy seat still rich in blessing, with the Holy Spirit, the irresistible Deity, still dwelling in us, with the precious name of Jesus, which makes hell tremble, still to cheer us, let us proceed, feeling that we must work while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. Let us work as long as the day lasts as we hear the chariot wheels of eternity behind us, we will speed on with all our might. But all I have been saying applies very little to some of you, because you have never given yourselves to God. You are still servants of Satan, and you cannot serve God. Poor souls, do you know why we want Christian people to be devoted? It is in order that you may be saved. We would not need to stir up Christians if it were not for you. You are without God, you are without Christ. Some of you are on your way to everlasting ruin. Others, who have heard the gospel for many years and know as much about it as I do, know nothing about its power within your own souls. Isn't it strange that we are so devoted to you, but you are not devoted to yourselves? If there was a woman's child out there in the street, and a dozen women tried to grab the child before it was run over by a cab, You would think it was a very strange thing if the mother stood by calm and cool, unexcited, or, as it were, uninterested about it. Yet, here is your soul, and there are just as many people in this chapel who feel anxious about you and wish they could save you, yet you do not care about your own soul. So, if you are lost forever, it will be no surprise, will it? You do not value yourself at anything, you throw yourself away. Who should be blamed for this? Will this be one of the thorns in your pillow forever? I took no thought about my soul. I set no value on it, and I carelessly threw it away. Will this sobering remorse keep up the flame unquenchable that shall forever torture your conscience? I refused to think about everlasting things. I played the fool and danced my way into hell. I wasted my time where God was devoted. I was careless where ministers wept. I was frivolous where Christ bled. I beg you to consider your ways and remember that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Believe in him. Trust him. That is the way of salvation. Rest upon him. And, when you've been saved, I pray that the Lord would cause you to feel the impulse of my text and say, I too must join with the band of workers saved by Christ. I too must say as Christ said, I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work.